0: Well, our focus for this year's Lent is the idea that as we loosen our grip on the created things in this world, we are rightly can worship the Creator first and allow created things to occupy a healthy place in our heart. So when we started talking about Lent as a staff, and when I hear the word Lent and I think about fasting— It um, has a response on me, and it's not good. It has a cookie monster response, and I just want to say, give me. So um, I want to eat decadent food, um, spend money on things I don't need, and in general, just indulge myself when I think about that. And far too often, I just give in to these temptations, and because I'm prone to sin... And everything I want seems so good and deceptively intriguing, and I just want that, or I want to do that. And um, so I could see this sin in myself as I was thinking about this um, for this week, but I just couldn't seem to get any handle on that. And um, so I was reading in Joshua, and the children of Israel had the same problem. So their leader Joshua is giving them his final farewell address before he dies. and he wants so badly for them to love the Lord and to enjoy the good land that God had given them. But you just sees that problems are ahead, and they've escaped slavery, um, but will they continue to walk in that, or will they re-enter slavery? So in Joshua 23, 6, Joshua starts, Therefore be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law, lest you turn aside from it, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. And here's where we get Joshua's instruction. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. And then he gives the alternative. He says, or else, if indeed you go back and cling to the remnants of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go in them and they into you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be snares and traps for you. And so as I um, just considered all these sparkly things that my flesh wanted to cling to, I could just see that instead of being treasures, they were just like a weighty load of rocks and a trap with consequences. So Carrie Newenhoff states it this way, a life devoted to self ultimately leaves you alone. So as I considered this, um, I really despaired and thought about how was I to escape, and it's really caused me to pray and seek the Lord. And so I saw that if I or we cling to the things of this world, we miss out on the good life that God has for us through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus says in John 10:10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. So here's what we need to do. Um, First, we need to repent and just recognize um, that the things that we're clinging to and our desires, that that's from the enemy, and um, those are not good things, but rather they're there to weigh us down and just burden us. And I need to recognize those things for what they are, just things. And I need to hold fast to Jesus and the abundant life he's purchased for us. Look to him, worship him, read his word, pray with him, love him and those around him. And this leads to the ever-growing abundant life that he wants for us. And then I also saw that as I'm holding fast to the Lord, it's just a mere fraction of how he's holding fast to me. And um, so we're always counting on the fact that he holds us fast. So let's just pray right now. Father God, I just thank you so much that you hold fast to us and you never let us go. Father, you're always drawing us and wooing us to you. And Lord, I just repent of the desire for other things and things that don't satisfy And Lord, I want you to be the one um, that satisfies me. Lord, I just pray for all of us that you would just show us the treasures of life and the treasure that we have in Christ, and that he would just shine brighter and brighter. And those other things, Father, would just grow to be seen for what they are, and that we could put them back in the healthy perspective, the created things that you have and that you are the creator God and that we could just show our love and um, admiration and worship to you. And we just pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks Libby. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter two. Uh, welcome to spring break. It snowed the last three days. That's how you know it's spring break in Missouri. M U and K U both lost. Everybody's miserable. It's cold. Everybody's just, we're trying to figure it out. Um, we're We're gonna continue forward here into what is sort of the next like big section in Genesis, because the Genesis 1 creation account actually creeps into the start of Genesis 2. And then in Genesis 2, verse 4, you get kind of the next section there. And we spent a good amount of time in Genesis chapter one trying to do our level best to understand the creation account from the perspective of the original reader. Jen Wilkins, she's a, a teacher, a staff member at a church down in Texas. She says that the key in reading the Bible is less about the debate that, that goes on between should the Bible be read literally or figuratively, and it's more about trying to figure out how to read the Bible in a biblically literate sort of way. That the key is to read the Bible as it is intended to be read and thus get from it what is intended as you read it. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we instinctively want to ask questions about when and how. And we talked about that over the last few weeks. Reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in a biblically literate way requires asking the question who and why rather than when and how and allowing Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to answer those questions for us and then live in response to them. It's not that Genesis has nothing to say about when and how, but it's that it primarily wants to tell us why and who. So we're going to continue that today and next week as we work through Genesis chapter 2. We're going to deal with this a little bit faster than we worked with Genesis chapter 1. That's because the way that Genesis 2 is set up Uh, Sort of lends itself to looking through a different lens than uh, Genesis chapter 1. So we went real slow through 1. We're going to go a little bit quicker through 2, and then we'll slow back down in Genesis chapter 3. If you've got Genesis 2 open there, I'm going to read from verses 2 to 17 this morning. Invite you to follow along with me. This is what it says These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east And there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first river is the Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gahan, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for this day. God, thank you for your word that you reveal yourself to us. God, I pray this morning that your spirit present here among us would open our eyes and hearts and minds to the truth of who you are. God, that you would help us to see who we are. God, that you'd open our hearts, and minds, and eyes. To the ways in which we live contrary to what it is that you have said is good. To the ways in which we pursue that which you have called evil. God, I pray you'd open our hearts and minds and eyes to the glory of Christ and his saving work on our behalf. God, I pray you would teach us what it is to live more dependently upon him to cling to the gospel more tightly as he holds steadfastly to us. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and eyes to the places in our lives where we need to humble ourselves and allow Jesus to be Lord and King and ruler, not just of this world, but of our actual lives. God, would you mold us into the image of your son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how we're going to do this really over the next two weeks. Uh, We're going to take a little bit of time this morning here at the start and, and sort of fit Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together. How is it that these two chapters relate to one another? When we're asking the question, who and why, what are these two chapters showing us about those two questions? Then over the course of Genesis chapter two, in the next two weeks, we're gonna take this reality of God being relational. That's what we're gonna see in Genesis two and see how that plays out in terms of who God is, how that plays out for humanity in the world that he has created, how that plays out for humanity and God in relationship with one another, and then how that plays out in relationships, uh, human to human. We'll do that over the next two weeks. This week, we'll deal with the first three. A relational god a relational place that he has put us in in a relational covenant next week we'll deal with relationship between uh, man and woman along the way this morning we're going to kind of take a step back and keep asking ourselves the question why does this matter or how does this impact the world that we live in today and then at the end we'll see the good news of a relationship restoring savior I wanna give two general notes before we jump into this. The words in Genesis chapter two matter a lot, like the actual like Hebrew words and what they're communicating. And so we're gonna spend a little bit more time than maybe we normally would talking about those words. And one thing that I always want to be careful of for both myself when I'm up here, but also anybody who comes up here is that we don't sort of position ourselves as if we have special knowledge and you need to show up and receive the special knowledge so that you can actually understand the book in front of you. We don't want to create that sort of appearance. And so um, I want to give you a resource. If you're a note taker, you can jot this down. Um, if you're not a note taker, this is something that still could be very valuable for you in your own personal study of scripture. If, if you go to the website all one word, com. That will pop up. There's a box there. You can type any passage of scripture in there. So you could type in Genesis 2, 4 through 17, and it will pull up that whole section split out by verse. You can then click on any verse that you want, and it will take that verse and split it out by word. Then you can click on any one of those words that you want, and it will give you, Old Testament or New Testament, a Hebrew and a Greek breakdown of what that word means, all the places it's used throughout Scripture, all the senses of that word um, in terms of how it's translated in English Bibles. And you can do that for any passage of Scripture uh, at any time. It's an incredible resource. Uh, people have spent, you know, lifetimes understanding the languages used in scripture and the internet has made it so that those resources can be available to anyone. So uh, I offer that to you because you could just like uh, check my work after we're done here this morning and kind of see for yourself what it is that we're talking about. And you can do that on any passage that you want to. The second general note, we're going to work generally though not uh, strictly in order here in this passage. Uh, we're gonna kind of take some things and do things in some, some sort of different pieces that I think will hope it all makes sense. Here's where we're gonna land. God is as intimately personal as he is incomprehensibly transcendent. He is as intimately personal as he is incomprehensibly transcendent. Genesis 4. Genesis 2, verse 4, the first phrase, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. That phrase, these are the records of, it appears 10 different times in the book of Genesis. It's one Hebrew word, mostly the word is toledoth. Every time that word appears, these are the family records of, or these are the records of, the author of Genesis, the text, is going to give you a name. And then that section of scripture until the next time you see that phrase is going to tell you the story or the account of that individual and their family. The whole book of Genesis is structured around the 10 times that that phrase appears. If you were here on the first week when we started this series and we kind of gave the big picture of the book of Genesis, we used this chart. Like what Genesis is doing is funneling your attention to one family. Okay, here are the records of the universe, the heavens and the earth. Now Adam then Noah, and Noah's sons, then one specific son of Noah, Shem, then Terah, then Isaac, and here's Ishmael, then Jacob, and here's Esau. You're getting your focus all the way down to one place so that the book of Genesis can start to point you to an answer to a problem, and that answer is Jesus. But it all starts with, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Genesis is telling you, There's a story to be told about this place and why it is the way that it is and how it became the way that it is so that we need to focus our attention in one place and ultimately end up at Jesus. Without the first three chapters of Genesis, the focusing of our attention makes no sense. The way things are around here has an explanation. Genesis 2 verse 4 says, here's the record. Here's how we got to where we are. One other point. Genesis 2 is not like zeroing in on one of the days of Genesis 1. So it's not like Genesis 1 gives you the seven days of creation when you take the Sabbath day at the start of chapter 2. And then Genesis 2 kind of says, okay, now inside day 6, here's what happened. If that's the way the two chapters function, you've got some chronological inconsistencies in Genesis chapter 2 that make it so that scholars who study the Bible say these had to be written by two sources. They were smushed together and at some later time, somebody came along and tried to edit them and make them make sense. That's a common source criticism. It misses the point. The best way to understand these two chapters is by understanding what the author is trying to communicate in each of them, the who and the why. So the who and the why in Genesis chapter one is that God is transcendent, huge, powerful. He's creator of all things, timeless, eternal, unchanging. He's this big God who has no origin, but instead is the origin of everything else. And then in chapter two, you've got a God who is personal, relational, covenantal, he actually is engaged and he rules the place that he created. He's king of it. Genesis 1, God made this place and here's a way to understand who he is and why he brought it about. Genesis chapter 2, here's how he relates to the people that he created and put in this place. He's intimately personal, Genesis chapter 2. And he is incomprehensibly transcendent, Genesis chapter 1. And he is completely both of those things. And so how do we see in Genesis chapter two, this personal nature of God? Well, the very name of God used in Genesis chapter two keys us into the reality. We said in Genesis chapter one that the name used for God throughout there is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. The spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light, God. That word in Hebrew is Elohim. It's a general word for Lowercase g, God, or gods that the Hebrew uh, Bible takes, sort of commandeers to mean God with a capital G. That's who's creating in Genesis chapter one. Here's the Elohim, who is the origin of all things. Genesis chapter two adds a name to that. Verse four, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At that time, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Lord God. Add a word to the front of Elohim. He's Yahweh Elohim. It's no longer a generic way to talk about a God or gods. This is the personal name of the God of the Israelite people. The book of Genesis is written down later. And so we get this name for God when Moses interacts with him. And God says, Moses says, who do I go back and tell the people that you are? And God says, I am who I am. The name Yahweh is a form of the word or the verb to be in Hebrew. I am, to be. So I am who I am. Go back and tell them that I am Yahweh. That's his personal name. I am the God who saved my people from slavery in Egypt. I am the God who is leading you through the wilderness in a pillar of fire. I am the God who split the Red Seas. I am the God who's giving you the law of Moses in this thundering cloud on Mount Sinai. I am the God who will lead you into the promised land. Yahweh, I am. That's who this Genesis chapter 1 Elohim is. He is the transcendent creator of all things, and yet he's personal in a way that's almost impossible to fathom. You can call me by my first name. Like, I don't know if any of you ever go back to your high school, and there's still someone teaching there who was there, and and you say, oh, Miss so-and-so, and and she says, you can call me Jennifer, and you're like, I don't think I can do that. (laughs) You're still Miss so-and-so. God says, you can call me Yahweh. That's how personal I am. It gets even more personal than that. Jump down to verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. In Genesis chapter one, God speaks and everything snaps into existence. In Genesis chapter two, there's a little bit more involved there. He's like intimately involved in the creation or the forming of humanity. Genesis chapter one, the earth is formless and empty. By the time you get to the end of it, it is formed and it is filled. Genesis chapter two, God forms a man and fills him with life. And this personal God is intimately involved in the act of creating the beings, humanity, that will bear his image. In Genesis chapter one, God is creating. We talked about that verb, bara. Now he's forming, a different verb, yasar. Other places in the New Testament that are the Old Testament, that word is used of craftsmen, like working with iron or wood or clay. There's like intentional, skillful design. They're artisans. That's what that word entails. The picture in Genesis chapter 2 is that Yahweh Elohim is this skillful artisan who reaches down into the dust of the earth, and he intentionally and skillfully creates humanity that's going to bear his image. The New Testament picks that up, that theme up, and just runs with it. In Romans, God is a potter who forms pots. In Ephesians, God's a poet and humanity, our God's a writer and humanity is his poem. In First Peter, God is a builder and the church is this building that he's, temple that he's putting together on the cornerstone of Christ. An intimate act of intentionality, skillfully creating humanity. But it gets even more intimate than that because we're told that he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils adam's nostrils the man became a living being he animates this dust turned human into life and the image is that he literally gets down face to face with adam pushes air into his lungs via his nostrils like he's literally like right there face to face with this being that he has skillfully crafted from the dust if you're trying to work the mental image this is squints and windy peppercorn And we are breathing life into humanity. How relational is the Elohim of Genesis chapter one? He's so relational. He says, you can call me by my first name. How relational is the Elohim of Genesis chapter one? Genesis chapter two says he's so relational he gets intimately involved in intentionally crafting humanity. How relational is the Elohim of Genesis chapter one? He's so relational in Genesis chapter two that he would go face to face and breathe life into humanity. That's how intimately personal this God is. Take a step back. Why does that matter today? God is as intimately personal as he is incomprehensibly transcendent. And the first reason why that matters today is because none of the rest of the Bible makes sense if both of those things aren't true. Like it all just completely falls apart if God is not both of those things. We're God only transcendent were he only this massive God who's kind of outside of everything that we experience here, then why would he care what Adam and Eve do in the garden? He's just, I got bigger things to worry about. I'm still forming planets. I'm still out here maintaining the universe. You guys just take care of it yourselves. Figure it out. If he's not both of those things, how's he aware of what happens in the garden? How is he able to call one man Abraham and say, I'm going to make you as numerous or your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I'm going to lead you to this land and give it to your descendants and then deliver on every single one of those promises? How is he able to rescue and lead the Israelites without being both? Were God only transcendent, then it shouldn't make one one bit of difference what you do in your life. He's got bigger things to worry about. If he's only personal on the level of a human, then he would not be able to do anything about the sin that plagues humanity. He has to be both. Genesis 1 and 2 set those two things side by side so that in one sitting over the course of six minutes, you can read both about his transcendence and his relational nature. It absolutely matters to God that we are sinful and broken and disobedient. But at the same time, it's not just that he can do something about it. It's that he actually desires to do something about our sin and our disobedience. Why? He's transcendent and he's personal. And the cheap way out here is to create a God who is either one or the other. He's either so big and so transcendent that it literally does not matter what I do because it's going to fly under the radar. His attention is on bigger things. Or he's so personal, so intimate that it doesn't matter what I do He's going to love me anyway. We create both of those options as a way of saying, he does not care the way that I live my life, nor should he, because he either has to love me or he can't see it. The truth is that he can see it, and yet he chooses to love you. Because God is incomprehensibly transcendent, he knows what ultimately leads to flourishing. He knows what those things are, and he can command, do this, not that. And yet, because God is intimately personal, he cares about us too much to let us live contrary to what leads to flourishing. And we get that sort of like intellectually, we just don't want it personally, I want to be able to live however I want. I want to not feel guilty when I sin. I want to be able to determine what is right and what is wrong or what is good and what is evil without God getting in the way. So I either write him off as too big to care or I make him so small that he's just going to love me either way. And yet, if you're a parent, you understand the necessity of both. When you're a toddler toddles over to the hot stove and reaches up out of curiosity to figure out what burners are, you rush in because you're smart enough to know that that's not good and you love them too much to let them do it. We get that. When your six-year-old says, I want to have cake and Oreos and ice cream for breakfast and lunch and dinner every meal until I die, you say, I will not let you do that because I know enough not to let you do it, and I love you too much to let you cause yourself that kind of pain. We understand the necessity of those two things because we see it as parents. We just don't want it from God because we would rather make our own decisions. I decide this is good and this is bad. He's relational, and he puts humanity in a relational place, The text tells us something about the way in which humanity is supposed to live in the place that God places them. And it's this picture of dependent rest and worship. When you're reading through Genesis chapter 2, you get to verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he placed the man he had formed. Jump over to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Verses 9 through 14 feel like this weird addition where all of a sudden we're just talking about the environment caused uh the lord god caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance for good food the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there are these four rivers there and there's gold and delium and onyx and it's like there are resources and what is going on here this was most likely written after the exodus event that's when Genesis would get written down, probably while the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai and Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the law and the instructions for the tabernacle. That's the back half of Exodus and all of the book of Leviticus. The Israelites are gathered there around the mountain. They're not supposed to touch it. God descends in a cloud. Moses goes up there. He's there for 40 days and he comes down and he's got all of that information. He's got one copy of it, right? There's no printing press up there. He's going to tell it to the Israelite people and the Levites, and they're going to memorize how it is that they're supposed to build the tabernacle and how it is that they're supposed to live. And God tells Moses, all this precious stuff you're going to use to make that tabernacle, it's always been here. The gold you need, the delium you need for the incense, your translation might say aromatic resin there. The onyx you need, it's always been here. And I'll tell you where it is. It was outside of the garden. Why? Because my bounty and the beauty of this place just overflowed outside of there. And you're going to gather it all up. You're going to put together this tabernacle and you're going to live according to my law. You're dependent upon me, the stuff I've put here, the way that I've told you to live and to worship. There's dependence. We're told twice that God does something with Adam. In verse 8 and verse 15, he places him in the garden. The word there in verse 15 comes from the the word nuah. It means to deliver or to rest. So God rests him in the garden. God delivers him to the garden. Think about that. Adam is created. God breathes the breath of life into him, and then he rests him in this place. It's overflowing with his bounty. You immediately get the call back to day seven from the creation account, and you get this immediate picture of God's gracious invitation to just rest with him there. And what is he supposed to do? Verse 15, Lord God took the man, placed or rested him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Your translation might say cultivate it and keep it. Those are two very meaningful words. If you were to transliterate them, it would be like serve it and guard it or dress it and guard it. The same words are going to be used to talk about what the priests and the Levites are supposed to do with the tabernacle. Serve it and guard it. The same two words are going to be used to talk about what the Israelites are supposed to do when they get to the promised land. Serve it and guard it. The same two words are going to be used to talk about what the Israelites, the Levites, and the priests are supposed to do with the temple. Serve it and guard it. Why? That's where the presence of the Lord dwells. And you rest there with him and you worship him by serving that place and guarding that place according to his word. The tabernacle, the promised land, the temple, the garden. That's where all of that starts. What is he supposed to do? Relate to God in dependent rest and worship. Okay, take a step back. Why does that matter? i gonna give you two reasons. The first one Dependent, rest, and worship, if you just took those three words, everything about modern American life laughs in the face of that. Dependence? Like, the pinnacle of American life is independence. When you're a child growing up, you remind your parents all the time, I'm gonna be 18, I'm gonna be an adult, and I don't have to live here under your tyrannical rule anymore. Independence. When you're a parent, and things are very tense. And your child says, I don't have to live here under your tyrannical rule anymore. parent says, and I don't have to deal with you anymore. You can just move out and go somewhere else and figure it out yourself, right? Independence. Genesis 2 says you were made for dependence upon this transcendent relational God. Adam talked about this last week. We prize hustle, grind, working around the clock. Genesis 2 says you were made for contented rest in the presence of the Lord. We prize being worshiped. Think highly of me, like my photos, worship me. Genesis 2 says give your worship to the one who it's due. We prize creating our own world, our own identity, our own path, our own truth, our own sense of right and wrong, rather than submitting to a transcendent, personal God who's made this place and shown us how to flourish in it. And the way that we flourish is in dependent rest in worship upon a transcendent yet personal God. St. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Second, reason that all of this matters. Human life is embodied, and it flourishes best in embodied relationships. We curate fake realities in digital spaces. We engage in cruel dialogue in digital spaces. We atrophy relationally despite the friend count in our digital spaces. We crater mentally and emotionally without physical contact. You were made for relationship with God and with others in this place, in these bodies right here. If the pandemic showed us anything, it showed us that you put people alone in their homes for too long and things get weird quick. Like it doesn't even take that long for stuff to just get sideways. We were made in this place, for this place, for relationship with the creator and relationship with one another. And the more we try to escape that, the more we find we simply cannot flourish without those realities in place. God is intimately personal and he is incomprehensibly transcendent. And now the transcendent personal one is going to lay out for Adam the means by which they're going to relate to one another. They makes an agreement with them, a covenant. The Bible is full of covenants. This is the first one. It lays the groundwork for all of the ones that come after it. If you go to the dictionary, you just flip to the word covenant, it's gonna tell you it's a binding agreement between two parties. That's true, but... In the biblical sense we can put a little bit more like flesh on that a covenant in the biblical sense is an established agreement between god and humanity in which both sides have obligations and transgression brings consequence that's a biblical covenant an agreement between god and humanity both sides have obligations and if either side transgresses their obligations there are consequences and so in verses 16 and 17 you get this covenant the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it you will certainly die God's covenant with Abraham or Adam is marked by provision, duty, prohibition, and consequence. we've already seen some of the provision verses nine through fourteen there's all the bounty and the blessings of god's creation available to Adam. And then in verse 16, Adam's told, you're free to just eat from any of it. Any tree in the garden. We're also told that there's the tree of life there in the garden, that they're gonna have access to that. And so God is providing sustenance and provision and he's providing life and he's gonna continue to do that. Humanity is supposed to work it and watch it, guard it and keep it or guard it and serve it, keep it and cultivate it. And there's one prohibition. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's humanity's side of the deal. Work and watch the garden. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there are hundreds of years of people trying to figure out what's up with that tree what it represents and means, and why, if God knew humanity was gonna sin, he put it there in the first place. I'm not gonna answer those questions this morning. People far smarter than me have written pages and pages and pages and pages attempting to answer those questions. Theologians have a, a whole host of theories. One commentator, Victor Hamilton, he took a look at a number of the different theories and interpretations of what's at stake with that tree, and he concludes the following. What is forbidden to man is the power to decide for himself what is in his interest and what is not. This is a decision God has not delegated to humanity. So go back to our big point and put that in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. God's the incomprehensibly transcendent creator of this place. He knows how it works and how humanity functions best within it. He's also intimately personal. And he knows the ins and outs of humanity. Generally, but he also knows the ins and outs of every human individually he knows better than we do the pain and the dysfunction and the destruction involved in sin and so he says if you eat from that tree you'll start to decide for yourselves what is good and what is bad and it will be a disaster in fact the rest of the Old Testament is a picture of just how right that statement was There's a common sort of secular critique of scripture that says that the Old Testament is full of all of these sort of like abominable practices that we would say were so much better than these. And therefore Christianity like upholds or somehow presents these in a positive light. The person who makes that comment has never actually read the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is telling you God was right and all of this is a train wreck. And so what's like the first thing that happens? You know what we should do when we don't like what somebody else does? We should murder them. You'll decide what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. We should have more than one wife, always a train wreck. We should be greedy with the stuff that God put here. We should own other people and have slaves. Scripture does not hold those up and say, see, look at how good this is. It holds those up and says, see, look at how right God was. All of this needs a solution, and the answer is Jesus. The Old Testament is a picture of what happens when we allow ourselves to think, I will decide what is right and what is wrong. I will decide what is good and what is evil. And then God gives the consequences. You will certainly die. That isn't a statement about immediate execution, though God could have chosen to do that. Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 3, walk out of the garden alive. You will certainly die is a statement about the fact that death will become the inevitable, ultimate reality for all of humanity as a result of eating from that tree. And that that death will be physical, certainly, but it will also be spiritual, What happens at the end of Genesis chapter three is that God puts two of these angelic beings guarding the gate to the tree of life. You don't have access anymore. You will die. Not right now, but death is what will ultimately, inevitably happen. Physical, spiritual, eternal death. And so that's the covenant. Transcendent Lord of the universe, who's intimately personal with humanity, enters into a binding agreement that he will continue to provide life and provision to humanity, and they will work and watch the garden and not eat from one tree. And honestly, you read it in Genesis chapter two, you're like, that sounds like a piece of cake. This seems like an ideal setup, but it totally falls apart one page later, not because God is not faithful to his side, but because humanity is incapable of ours. So step back. Why does that matter? The issues at play today within humanity are the same as they were then. What's at the core of your individual sin? Deciding what you think is right and what you think is wrong. What I think is good. What I think is evil. What's at the core of many of society's biggest debates right now? Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Who gets to decide what's good and what's evil? Trusting God's determination of those realities is impossible in our flesh. Both as a society as a whole and also as individuals, both outside the church, but brothers and sisters also inside it. Think about the last time you sinned. You probably knew what God said about that thing. You probably understood the consequences that would come into play, either for you personally or for the people around you. And yet you or I chose to sin anyway. Why? Because I will decide what I think is right and what is wrong, and everyone else will have to deal with it. That's what's at the core of our sin. There's a second piece to this. In these bodies, in this world, this is the place where we are to display our dependent rest and worship upon God. And it's also incredibly nitty gritty you're in a bible reading plan and you're and you've either already made it through or you're somewhere in the middle of leviticus it's like mind numbingly boring how nitty-gritty the embodied display of our dependence upon god is supposed to be so how does the world know if you love god and worship him we'll get to the new testament and james and john and paul and jesus they all say the same thing the world will know it by how you live in that body in this place how you live is not going to be the thing that saves you, but how you live will be the evidence of the fact that you have been saved. God is as intimately personal as He is incomprehensibly transcendent, makes a covenant with humanity that we cannot keep, and the consequence of that is that you will certainly die. Enter Jesus, because He is going to fulfill both sides. The agreement. The transcendent, eternal Son of God takes on flesh and blood personhood and comes into the world as a relationship restoring, covenant fulfilling Savior. He comes in the flesh, embodied, and upholds the covenant. He lives his entire life in dependent rest and worship. He literally says, It is my food to do the will of my Father. I can only do what I see the Father doing. How intimately personal is he? He's willing to take on flesh and blood in order to come and to restore and to fulfill that covenant. Not only does he uphold it, he suffers the consequences of each and one of us who are disobedient and unfaithful to the human side of it. And so by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, what do the people of God get as a result? Access to life. Eternal, physical spiritual life to the full. And now the son is forming a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And as he's saving and redeeming those people, he's breathing the Holy Spirit into them and filling them with life, empowering them to live lives of dependent rest and worship. And so it makes total sense that Jesus during his ministry would say, I am the bread of life. I have streams of living water. I am the vine, you are the branches. You get connection to the tree, right? And that's how you will bear fruit. You flip all the way to the end of the book in Revelation 21 and what's present in new heaven and new earth, the tree of life. And those who get access to it are those who have been saved by a relationship-restoring, covenant-fulfilling Savior by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Everything was given to Adam in the garden, by God's gracious act. Everything is given to you, brothers or sisters, in your new life in Christ, by God's gracious act. In Jesus, the covenant has been fulfilled, relationships have been restored, access to the tree has been guaranteed. The intimately personal, incomprehensibly transcendent God has not only laid out the terms, but he's fulfilled them, and now he holds them out to us by his grace. We did nothing but mess it up, he did nothing but fulfill both sides of the bargain. We're gonna take communion this morning. We're gonna do this in a way that's a little bit different than we normally do. If you're someone who's gonna pass out these elements, we come grab these and start to distribute those. We're gonna just hold these for a little while and we're gonna hold them during our first song, which is different than, than usual. I asked Brian uh, if we could sing a particular hymn here It's one that's not like in our heavy rotation. We sing it every once in a while. When I said I wanted to sing this one, Brian said we haven't sung it since 2021. So it's been a couple years. But the lyrics begin I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my savior's love for me. Now we're gonna hold on to these elements as we sing this song because the second verse is, he took my sin and my sorrow. How intimately personal is he? He made them his very own and he bore that burden to Calvary, suffered and died alone. How marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me so you're welcome to either spend this time in quiet reflection uh you're welcome to sing Uh, if you've not received jesus christ as your savior you're welcome to ponder the truth of the god that genesis 1 and 2 presents to us the reality of sin and whether or not you do need a savior after this first song we'll take those elements together sound good